She appeared out of nowhere. This woman whose gaze had been bent down toward the ground for 18 years shuffled toward the assembly well after the service had begun. She knew that she did not belong in that place. No one needed to remind her of that. A woman in her condition was, to her peers, the embodiment of humanity's brokenness, the inherited sinfulness of their people. No one wanted to see her, especially in a holy place on a holy day. So she made a habit of sneaking up to an open door or window to catch a few words of the rabbi's teaching a brief chance to feel normal, like she belonged among the children of Abraham before returning to the reality of her downcast life. But this Sabbath day was different. Jesus saw her. Jesus noticed her. Before she could slip away, right in the middle of his sermon, Jesus saw the woman who for 18 years had been living an invisible life and he called her over to him. From beyond the edge of the assembly, where no one would notice her, Jesus invited the woman to come and stand beside him in the center of attention, where the scrutinous and critical stares of the congregation beheld her. There, before God and everyone in the synagogue, Jesus laid his hands upon her and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. Immediately, the woman stood up straight and began praising God. Her voice, which had been silenced by those who believed that a woman such as her would never have anything worth uttering to the divine, that voice was lifted up in song and praise. This child of God looked up toward heaven, reaching toward her creator with both body and soul, and she spoke words of healing and wholeness for everyone to hear. And the ruler of the synagogue was furious. Indignant, enraged, grieved, pained, the man who was in charge of keeping order in that religious assembly immediately lashed out at the entire crowd. There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. That man knew well what would happen if he allowed this sort of renegade action to take hold within the community, so he did what any good religious leader would do. He reasserted his authority over the congregation and called into question the legitimacy of the visiting rabbi who had done this unholy thing. Invoking the law of Moses, he reminded the people of their sacred obligations only if a life were in danger should the Sabbath be violated. This woman had carried the infirmity with her for almost 20 years. Why couldn't she wait just one more day and honor God by coming to be healed after the Sabbath was over? But what if the healing she sought, what if the restoration she needed wasn't available after the sun had set and the Sabbath was over? What if her salvation had as much to do with confronting the religious leader as having her spine straightened out? 
2,000 years later, in a thoroughly Gentile Christian community that is largely unfamiliar with Sabbath observance, I think we have a hard time recognizing just how right the synagogue leader really was. Five times in this passage of only eight verses, five times Luke mentions that it was the Sabbath, refusing to let even a Gentile reader miss the point he's trying to make. Apart from being one of the Ten Commandments, why was keeping the Sabbath so important? Well, a few centuries before this story took place, after the first temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, God's people looked for ways to remain faithful even when they were unable to worship on that holy temple mount. During the Babylonian exile, household practices like circumcision and keeping kosher and observing the Sabbath became the principal ways that God's people remained connected with God and their ancestors. Even though by the first century when Jesus lived, another temple had been built, it was gatherings like this one we read about today, synagogues in which the community came together in faith on the Lord's Day, those were the primary way that Jewish people lived out their faith. So to threaten that, even if it were a, an eloquent rabbi visiting from another town to threaten it, when that got threatened, it was the very core of Jewish identity that was being threatened. I wonder if our reactions have proven any different than the leader of the synagogue when it's been our identity under threat. What would happen if we allowed religious leaders to bend our sacred traditions until they started to break? What would become of our religion if we let preachers and teachers, theologians and seminary professors, bishops and convention deputies, if we let them start to question the very core of our faith, the central practices that we have inherited from our spiritual ancestors, wouldn't everything we hold dear start to fall apart? If we listen to people like Jesus, how long will it be before we no longer recognize the church that we hold dear? How long until this place is filled with formerly bent over people who are just now starting to stand up? How long until we let women speak in this sacred assembly, even let them preach or preside at the Lord's table? How long before women's voices and stories and experiences and bodies are as valuable as a man's? What will happen to these sacred walls or the foundation upon which they were built, if a trans voice ever dared to straighten up and praise God in our midst? Would those of us who come together in this place still be called children of God if we allowed things like that to happen? Could we have a church like that and still call ourselves holy? What if this bent-over woman needed the sort of healing that only a radical, institution-questioning, tradition-shattering rabbi could provide? What if the very spirit 
that had bound her for 18 long years, that satanic weight that had pressed her down, bowing her entire existence further and further from God, what if that spirit was precisely the sort of religious oppression that only the Son of God could cast off? Now, to be clear, the institution that Jesus confronts in this controversial healing is not Second Temple Judaism, the faith of his people, the faith given to them by those who had gone before. What Jesus confronts is something timeless. It's humanity's inexorable drive to restrict and restrain the unconditional love of God until it conforms to the image of our best intentions. When Jesus rebukes that leader of the synagogue, notice that he doesn't discard the law of Moses. He uses it to expose the leader's hypocrisy. If you would lose your livestock every few hours on the Sabbath to let them drink, Jesus explained, how much more should we loose this daughter of Abraham from the spiritual bond that has imprisoned her for 18 years? The problem Jesus identifies is not Sabbath observance. It's the ways in which good and faithful people like us use religion to bind other people and try to prevent them from receiving God's grace. The danger Jesus exposes is how easily people like us confuse the liberating work of God with the threatening work of the devil. If the relationship with God that Jesus offered the world was really as inviting and welcoming and universally popular as we like to make it out to be, the religious leaders of his day would not have crucified him for it. That's how controversial what he said about God was. They killed him for saying it. To people in positions of religious authority today, even and especially those who call themselves Christians, the way of Jesus remains just as threatening. But in his death and resurrection, Jesus does something that reorients us, that recalibrates the way we know God and God's will for the world. Because God has come among us in the flesh, And because in Christ God has suffered and died for the sake of the world, there can be no tradition or rule or best intention that gets in the way of God's unconditional love. Because God responded to humanity's rejection of God upon the cross by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, we know that nothing has the power to restrict God's love. And we also know that anyone or anything that tries to restrict it cannot be of God. Although human beings continue to try to twist God's will and invoke it in ways that bend other people down to the ground, those who look for Christ will always find him lifting those people up right in our midst. In his book, The Meaning in the Miracles, Jeffrey John quotes a YWCA Bible study that captures the meaning of this miracle today. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like more and more bent over women standing up. 
How can we know if the kingdom of God is actually coming? Why not look around and see if there are any formerly bent over women standing up? Brother, if you ever see a bent over woman beginning to unbend and straighten herself, at the very least, you had better give her a little standing room. Because that isn't just another bent over woman standing up, that's your sister rising to her full stature, and that's God's kingdom cranking up. And sister, if for whatever reason you are still bent over and weighed down, and you think that's the way it was intended to be or must always be, then know that you have been given divine permission to straighten yourself fully and stand up. And know, too, that since it is Satan who wants you to be a slave, only the devil himself would say that now is not the time or this is not the place. If your spirit is bent over, you are free to rise up. Let it be so, brothers and sisters, again and again and again. Let it be so.